The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in London. Every vision starts with a dream, or at least a good movie. Take the case of Koenigsegg, in a movie theater in Sweden where a five-year-old boy wanders in and wonders what has just happened to him. The story was displayed on a stop-motion film shot in Norway about a bicycle repairman who builds his own race car. The car competes at Le Mans with the best of the best, and the car wins. And the boy, wide-eyed in that Swedish theater, is changed forever. That was 1977. The world would never be the same. This is the Koenigsegg, Sweden's attempt to land a punch in the Italian-dominated world of the supercar. Christian von Koenigsegg's movie is just as remarkable, the results equally as amazing, and the tale just as captivating. A dream, a vision, a brand, a cult following and a culture created, but not out of Sweden's thin air. His is one of hard work, naysayers, and an entrepreneurial mindset that convinced him that tomorrow was possible and that his dream of building cars from the ground up was doable. Not just any cars, though. How about the fastest cars in the world? Hypercars. The very definition of a testament to raw speed, power, energy, precision. Christian von Koenigsegg didn't want to settle on just another car. He wanted the world to take notice. He was 22, and they did. They were featuring two exceptional automobiles, hypercars, if you will. Both of them are made by Koenigsegg, you know, the Swedish manufacturer, the Agera RS and the Regera. Now, this one has the distinction of being the fastest production car in the world. In 1994, von Koenigsegg founded the Koenigsegg Project which was the culmination of his lifelong interest in sports and performance cars. His vision was to create his own car, but do it bigger and better than anyone had done before. Fast forward some 27 years, and today the Koenigsegg brand is one of the biggest names in the hypercar industry, globally recognized for producing cars that are both beautifully styled and mind-bendingly fast. And they are. The CC8S, for example, the first street-legal production car and a Guinness Book of World Records record holder, right out of the gate. Zero to 62 miles an hour in under 3.5 seconds, and a top speed of nearly 245 miles per hour. The CCR, the CCX, the CCXR followed, the latter of which Forbes called one of the world's most beautiful cars. By December of 2010, the Agera won the BBC Top Gear Hypercar of the Year Award and hit 264 miles an hour. By 2019, the Koenigsegg Regera set a world record with a scintillating time of 31.49 seconds from zero to 249 miles per hour and back to zero, beating the record set by the previous Agera RS in 2017. So now comes the Jesco. The Gamera will follow. $1.9 million to buy and zero to 62 miles per hour in under two seconds. Mind-bendingly fast, Indeed. And all the while, Christian von Koenigsegg quietly building a powerhouse culture and a company to watch in this space. For a businessman who started his business in the worst economic climate in Sweden's history, the accomplishments are substantial, the statement's clear. Or as Forbes said, 
pay attention to Elon Musk and Christian von Koenigsegg. It's speed. It's persistence. It's the man behind the fastest machines in the world, with just as much culture to preserve and nurture. How does he do it? What's around the corner? Christian Erland Harald von Koenigsegg tells us next. Hi, I'm Christian von Koenigsegg. I'm here at uh, Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the program. Welcome into Cars and Culture, Christian. How are you? Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm great. And, uh, great pleasure to be on, on, on the show and uh, nice to see you again. Nice to see you. You're always, your mind is always going in different directions. And I know you always have new fo- uh, new focus. Where is your mind today on the company and on what you'd like to accomplish in the near term? So uh, we're going through uh, an expansion phase where we're growing uh, quite a lot and have been doing so for the last couple of years. So it's uh, apart, apart from kind of figuring out the next product, products, projects, uh, where the industry is going is kind of also learning to become a little bit of a bigger company and, and holding the, the ship together and, and making sure everyone runs in the right direction, which is, which is very exciting. Uh, and I think just, yeah, generally speaking, it's, it's good, good momentum and uh, a great interest out there. And we have a lot of exciting stuff in the pipeline. So a lot of exciting stuff with a lot of excited people. Let's focus on on what you said just a moment ago, which is becoming a bigger company. What are the things that you've had to learn in that journey? Uh, well, it's it's basically learning by doing, I would say. Uh, and uh, I, I think it's it's really important to kind of make sure everyone understands the company culture, where we where we came from, how how we started out, and 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 where we're going. And and to me, it's very important to maintain this kind of can do nothing is impossible uh highly spirited culture uh and and that is a great focus of mine to make sure even though we have become quite a lot bigger that that stays the same and how do you do that well it's 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 uh, yeah that's a good question but it's it's <laughs> being being very present at, at the factory Mo- most of the operations are still in one location which makes it easy so i spend a lot of time personally attending many of the meetings and and hanging out with people and and sharing past past anecdotes and 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 future visions but but of course not stifling the uh, the company in in that everyone has to take responsibility of their different departments and divisions and their tasks but still kind of yeah spreading the uh, the spirit in, in a clear way so it's it's still very very much on a personal basis and and of course if you can instill the the, the, the new management and, and the bigger management with, with this way of working, they can then pr- proceed with a similar approach within the different uh, departments and divisions. And I, I think that's working quite well. So, Does the company get to a point in size where you start to um, put in structures that you didn't anticipate, I suppose? When you start, you're, it's just you and it's, and it's everything that you want to do. But as it grows, you have to adapt and change and leadership styles change. And I'm guessing that a lot of that is, is truly learning on the go. Uh, absolutely. So I mean, I would put like this, of course, you need, you need a lot of more structure when, when you're more people because one hand doesn't necessarily automatically know what the other hand is doing. When you're a small team, you kind of sit together and every, everyone hears everything about everything and knows pretty much everything so they can act on that total knowledge. Uh, he, here it's someone tells something to someone and then it continues that way and, and the message might get distorted on the way. So 
So it, routines and processes are, of course, uh, much more important when you're bigger than when you're smaller. I've heard you say, I've, I've read that perhaps the company is a little unswedish to do the things that you do. What did you mean by that? Well, I would say, uh, yes, uh, th there aren't a lot of luxury brands from Sweden or, or extreme kind of uh, high end, maybe luxury is not the right word, but high, high end brands of, uh, of this nature. So that, that is on Swedish. And, and, and I would say that generally speaking, the Swedish mentality is quite that you shouldn't st stick out too much from the norm. And, uh, which is a little really opposite of, of, of what you do <laughs> <laughs> exactly so but but I think my, my thoughts around that are really um, this was my childhood dream uh, and of course there are a lot of car passionate people in Sweden like there are in every country and, and I, I, I don't think it's a Swedish thing I'm doing it's, it's, it's I'm just fulfilling my childhood dream and I would have done it wherever I would have lived so and and but I do think Sweden is a good breeding ground and, and, and a good place for growing this type of business because we have a lot of high tech. We have aerospace industry. We have of course car industry. We have a trucking industry. We have a lot of software companies and electronic development companies, especially considering how small uh, Sweden is in size. And we have a lot of creative people within design and music and and uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in little Sweden. So. Uh, and, and I think we have a sense for quality and, and, and being, being kind of, uh, yeah, what, what we say is what we do kind of mentality, which is very important, I think. So, so uh, it's, even though it's a fairly un-Swedish product, I think Sweden is a good place to do something like this. So mm. given what I just yeah. said. Let's go back to what you just said. You were a five-year-old boy and you watched a film a stop-motion film called Pinchliff Grand Prix and it's about a Norwegian bicycle repairman named Roder who builds a supercar for Le Mans and wins the race the super bug is caught at that point supercar bug is caught for you you can still remember that I'm guessing oh, as the impetus uh, for where you are today very vividly so I, I got the question when i started the company back in 1994 so why did you do this and so on and i i kept on answering just simply yeah well i'm i'm very car interested and this is what i wanted to do and then it always immediately came back with a with, with, with a comment as yeah but there are a lot of car interested people that does not start car companies so i had to think a little bit deeper and my my absolute first memory uh, of wanting to build a car was seeing that movie when i was six seven years old and, and I read somewhere that um, if you have an impression that really uh, affects you under the age of 11 or 12, it really shapes your personality and, and what you become as, as a grown up person and, 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 and just stays with you because you're like an open book at that point. So I think I was kind of pre-programmed that, yeah, I had to do it somehow uh, after seeing that movie. Uh, before seeing it, I don't think I had a huge interest in cars, but after it, but I was so impressed by, by the story and the emotions and the, the somewhat underdog mentality of this and, and coming from nowhere like a bicycle repairman and, and beating the establishment. It, it just resonated with me very deeply. So uh, it, was a, it was a race against all odds for the individual in the film. And you've described your own journey as a race against all odds. Yeah, ab absolutely. So why, why has I, it been a race against all odds for you? Well, I mean, there are really, 
what well, in modern days now the last like five or ten years maybe you can say there are some successful startups within the car industry with this whole electrification scenario that came about that that enabled a change perhaps but before that um there were really no successful startups in modern times in the car industry the car industry was kind of rigged only for big companies to operate the whole certification homologation supply chain uh, were, were totally directed towards a couple of huge companies that had been around for a hundred years uh, and these companies didn't really want to allow any startups to enter or or so it was it was like absolutely impossible for a young kid from sweden with no background in automotive uh, with no real financial resources to succeed and go up against super established old brands what, what, what some of the strongest brands in the world regardless of industry that is really against all odds and and i realized when i started that that was the scenario and it was pretty much impossible but at the same time i wanted to prove to myself that you can do anything if you really put your mind effort to it if you're willing to kind of sacrifice everything anything is possible uh and and th that's what i believed in and then i thought this apart from being super interested in cars it was the perfect opportunity to try to live my dream and prove to myself and everyone else that that you can actually pretty much do anything if you really put your mind to it and in fact, your plan was to build cars that were the opposite of what people usually think a smart business idea is. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's what you said. <laughs> exactly. So, so, so I would put it like this. No, nobody was asking for it. No, no, no. It, it was the opposite of a business idea. Nor, normally, when you when you want to set up a business, you check if is there a demand for this product uh, that is not fulfilled. And I, I mean, you could perhaps say that. But when I when I started. Basically, the, the headlines in the car magazines were the supercar is dead. No one needs it anymore. And you had Lamborghini almost going bankrupt. Bugatti did go bankrupt. Uh, even Ferrari was kind of struggling at the time and, and Porsche had a tough time. So, so it wasn't that there was a demand by, on, that was visible at least and, and not for a start, from a startup. So, so that was a really a no-go. And then do, do I know what I'm doing? Do I have previous experience? Do I have enough financing? It was like, no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> but still I wanted to do it, you know, so it, it was really the opposite of a business idea, but, but it turned out that, uh, yeah, six, seven years later, when we, when we had a car to sell, the world had changed. Um, there, there was a different uh, financial situation in the world and, uh, and there was still an interest for extreme sports cars. And, and we were really part of, uh, th th that wave of extreme cars uh, coming into play, uh, we kind of instigated it to a certain degree, I think, um, and and it, it proved uh, possible in the end. So is that good timing or a great idea or both? Mm, you know, I, I wouldn't call it good timing. It, it was like when I hear people say, um, yeah, if someone is lucky or something in, in business, it's usually that, if, if, if you have perseverance and, uh, and, 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 and you stick in it for a long period of time, you can catch the opportunities that come by rarely. And, and I, I mean, when I started in 1994, it took two, until 2002 until I could deliver a homologated, tested, functioning uh, product. And, and uh, so basically I, I had staying power so I could grab the opportunities that came along. So I, I wouldn't necessarily call it good timing. It just staying power more than good timing maybe.
Okay. Yeah, that's fair enough. And to get ideas for that first car, some people might not know. You went and tore pages out of old car magazines and studied technical manuscripts, searching for ways to build your dream car on a tight budget. And yeah, you said so, it was a lot of bread and water for years. <laughs> absolutely. So, so I started, I mean, I started planning to build my own car since I was six years old. So with my kind of pocket money or, uh, that I got from my parents, I bought uh, car magazines for most of, of it and I had piles of these magazines. And I kind of read them very carefully in detail to understand why cars were different, what differentiated them and why, what, what was the underlying philosophy be, uh, yeah, behind these different types of cars and try to absorb that so I would have this kind of database when I started of what I want to do or not. And, and of course, when I actually started the company in 1994, I, 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 well, I continued that process, but it was very much like, yes, no, I like this. I don't like that. Why did it do it this way? And all of them did it this way, but I think we can be in a completely different way. And, and so, so I kind of used that mythology that I started as a young kid to figure out what I wanted uh, uh, my own car to be. And, and, and in, in a nutshell, I understood that it can't just be something similar to what's out there because then, then the customers will buy what's out there with the brands they already know uh, and trust. So I, it has to be somehow more interesting uh, slash better performance slash uh, somehow uh, more appealing or, or, or higher degree of safety or whatever. It's, it's more functionality, perhaps, like this detachable stowable hardtop and the doors we came up with. Um, and, and I could also see that from, from, a, from a kind of chassis perspective, uh, all the road going road going supercars at the time, this was before hypercars, of course, they had pretty simplistic uh, chassis and suspension solution. They had double wishbones and so on, but they were not very, very extreme if you compared it to a formula car or something like that. So I, I felt let's go more of this formula car approach with very long, lightweight wishbones, less track width deviation, more control over the wheels, bigger bearings, get, just getting these fundamentals to a higher level and at a lower weight in combination then with more power, uh, better aerodynamics, mm. better ergonomics, whatever we could do uh, to stand out. And, and uh, yeah, I think in, in the end, we, we managed to do that. So For sure, for sure you have. Uh, one more piece of history that most people wouldn't know. If you want to start a car company, you're going to need money. And you had a few ideas, patent-wise, but you also started a trading company selling all manner of things, including frozen chickens from the United States that went to Estonia. Is that correct? That is absolutely true. So when I was 19 years old, uh, I started my first company. So I started Koenigsegg when I was 22. Uh, and I started my first company when I was 19 because, uh, well, I had the ambition to build cars, but I had absolutely zero resources. So I said, I need to make some money. Uh, and I had some ideas for... Uh, well, some some patents, um, and uh, one was this kind of clicked wooden floor, and I came up with that idea because my my father-in-law, well, turned out to be my father-in-law, my girlfriend's father at the time, uh, he he was in the wooden floor industry, and uh, I was in love, and I, I want to impress him, and then I came up with this idea how you can <laughs> can click wooden planks together. He wasn't very interested; he thought I didn't know what I was talking about, uh, but I showed it around a little bit in Sweden and in Belgium where I lived at the time, and in, in the end, 
some Swedish and Belgium uh, uh, flooring manufacturers started manufacturing floors like that three, four years later. I didn't take any patents, so um, yeah, that was that. But uh, at least I, I can take credit for the idea. And it became a really big thing. I mean, almost all kind of wooden floors in the world are, 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 are put together this way now. So that was a pretty big idea, uh, it turned out. But uh, yeah, so it didn't give me any money. Uh, but uh, I had a kind of very advanced business idea of buying something for X and selling it for Y, which would be a little bit more than X then. Uh, and, and it turned out that uh, in Estonia, they needed, uh, uh, this was after the Iron Curtain had fallen a few years earlier, and they needed plastic bags, pens, uh, chicken apparently, and other things. And, and so I kind of checked out the local need and, and uh, found a few local contacts there that kind of helped out from that side and, and started looking around what I could find. So I found uh, plastic bags in Sweden with a print upside down that I could get almost for free. Uh, and they didn't care. They were just happy to get plastic bags. So I could make a little bit of money on that. Same thing with, with kind of ballpoint pens with uh, like uh, wrong prints on it and stuff like that. Commercial pens that I could buy, buy for almost nothing. And they were happy to get ballpoint pens. And then, yeah, chicken, frozen chicken. So for I think for a couple of months, we were the largest chicken importer in Estonia. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, we ended up with a small office in Stockholm. Uh, we were three people working in the company. And, uh, and three years later, I said to myself, okay, I've proven to myself I can make money, I can create a business, I, I have that in me. Uh, but I'm not very interested in frozen chicken or, or plastic pans. It is cars I want to build. Uh, now I have a little bit of money, and uh, if I don't start now, I probably will never do it. I I I didn't have any kids. I didn't. Uh, I wasn't married, and and uh, I felt it will probably take a long time, and be it will probably be very difficult and and hard. So if I don't do it now, I probably will never do it. And uh, yeah, and that was in 1994. Never looked back. Um, still have the original company from when I was 19. It's the wow. only company in the group. So. Um, yeah, that was that. And then uh, less than a decade later, you, you produced that, that first vehicle. Several prototypes were, were made, but the first car was sold in 2002. And, yeah, yeah. So the first, prototype, that, uh, the first prototype yeah, we managed ahead. to do in two years. Um, and, and I was very, very disappointed because according to my plan, I should be able to build the first running car in one year from, from inception, I thought. <laughs> uh, instead, it took twice the amount of time and, and three, four uh, times as much money as I had hoped, but we got it together. And in hindsight, I have no idea how we could build that kind of extreme car in that short period of time that worked that well, because it was a ground up chassis. Uh, the engine and gearbox were standard. They were from Audi, uh, but bodywork, carbon fiber, semi-carbon fiber chassis, um, uh, a lot of unique features and functions. And if you, if you look at it today, it's still kind of, you can, you can recognize the modern Koenigsegg in that first prototype. It was very, very rough, but, but uh, yeah, it's still running, so. <laughs> and the CC8S model was then deemed the most powerful production car by the Guinness Book of World Records. And in, yeah. and in fact, uh, that same year, the car also made not only the record, but well, it made a different set of record books when a driver in Texas was given the fastest speeding ticket ever at 242 miles per hour. You, I mean, this is the epitome of I have built exactly what I was thinking. P pretty much, yeah. <laughs> it, it, uh, I mean, I actually didn't understand when I started out that the cars would be that fast. Uh, but when we took the first 
we took the first uh, prototype uh, to the Volvo Winton. We saw that it had under 0.30 in drag, which was super low with these kind of wide tires. So our, our kind of shape that was created out of emotion and, and, and ideas about aerodynamics, of course, at that time, we did not have sophisticated simulation tools and so on. It was just built on gut feeling and, and, and common trying to understand how it was supposed to, to work aerodynamically, but it worked out great. So then when we started to see the power levels we could get out of the CC8S engine, we realized this is gonna be a super fast, super powerful car. And, and uh, yeah, it was enough to break some records for most powerful homologated production engine in the world and the fastest uh, production car in the world on the second model, the CCR. So. That was really a good start. Absolutely. And, and actually led to so many other amazing projects, which we're going to get to. Um, when you think about product and what you're designing now, it, does it even beat your own wildest dreams, what, you, what you've been able to accomplish in terms of that product development? Uh, does in, it exceed in many ways. Yeah, in many ways, yes. But as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I wanted to prove to myself that anything was possible when I started Koenigsegg. So in my mind, everything is still possible. And, and therefore, I guess I'm less surprised when it actually works, uh, having proven that to myself so many times. And we do in the company set up pretty wild dreams that come true a lot of the time. So I wouldn't use the word surprised anymore, but, but uh, fortunate and excited that the, the, the simple... Uh, philosophy stays true. <laughs> and now you have articles written about the company, such as one of Forbes. There are two people making cars these days that truly bear watching, Elon Musk and Christian von Koenigsegg. Oh. What does that mean to you? <laughs> well, that's, it's a great honor to be pl placed in that, uh, yeah, in that little group. Uh, and of course, Elon um, is, uh, I'm a great fan. Uh, I mean, it's amazing what, what he has achieved. And uh, I've been following quite closely when I, I didn't know so much about his PayPal days, but I, I read somewhere, I think it was on the internet, that the guy who sold PayPal started building rockets. And, and I felt that's a guy with a similar mindset that anything is possible. And, and maybe that's what I would have done <laughs> yes. if I sold something for a billion dollars. I found that very interesting. And, and, and I followed him and, and uh, luckily so, because uh, yeah, I managed to buy some some shares very close to their IPO, and and it was kind of easier way to make money than to build my own cars. <laughs> in the end, <laughs> when you look at where the industry is now, let's talk about electric. Um, you're a forward-looking company when it comes to performance and technology. Could there be the plan to electrify models in the future, and if so, how will that affect the culture surrounding the brand? Well, uh, I think electrification is super interesting. And of course, uh, given the times we're in, it's an absolute necessity for, for the environmental aspects. And uh, we, with the Regera, uh, we really pioneered uh, extreme electrification within our, in, within our field or in the, in the, in the hyper mega car scene by uh, having the world's first 800 volt uh, uh, propelled car in the world, regardless of car type regardless if it's a hybrid or a pure EV, uh, we, we were the first. Um, and and, and the, the technology we've been developing uh, for the Regera and, and after that for the Jamira and what's coming up is really trying, or we are staying ahead of the curve of what we can see when it comes to 
to weight, size, performance, and, and function. Um, and, and, and mixing and matching this with uh, extreme uh, combustion engine technology with a renewable fuel base, I think is very exciting for our industry. But also, of course, going fully electric uh, is, is something we, we will do. Uh, but in the short term, as we're also very performance driven, uh, in the short term, a pure electric or, or only electric hyper mega car is quite a lot heavier if you're going to have any kind of range with this kind of power level. And you don't have as exciting sound, you could argue, perhaps. Um, so, so we're mixing and matching for the time being, uh, but we're staying. Uh, I mean, all, all of our vehicles are capable of running on renewable fuel and, and going uh, kind of bio-renewable fuel together with hybrid uh, and this kind of extreme technology is still, um, yeah, uh, given also the low mileage of the cars, of course, generally speaking, is, is, is being very environmentally conscious in the process. But, but I, I find as much uh, pleasure and excitement in, in creating these electrical propulsion systems as, as combustion engines. Uh, but, but I still do think there's a lot that can be done with combustion engines for, for uh, purposes where electrification is not fully re yet ready for some time, for marine and aerospace applications where you need very long range and where you can run on renewables in combination with electrification. And then for hyper mega cars, which has the, if you want to stay on, on a very exciting performance level, you have to watch out for weight. So it's still very interesting there. So you think that the culture around the brand would follow the brand, even if all models have the electrification option? Uh, well, that that has to be seen. But I'm, I, right now, of course, there is a, a, a huge interest in in uh, in uh, yeah combustion engine hyper mega cars. But there is so much that more that can be done with electrification that hasn't been done yet. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm confident we can muster up the same level of excitement when we do it our way. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with Christian von Koenigsegg, founder and CEO of the Swedish high-performance manufacturer, Koenigsegg Automotive AB. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep. Technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars. From industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back into Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in London. Now back to my interview with Christian van Koenigsegg, founder and CEO of the Swedish high-performance manufacturer, Koenigsegg Automotive AB. Uh, let's talk technology. Uh, what's coming in terms of groundbreaking innovation? Yeah, so I, I think the, 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 the Regera and the Jesko's uh, uh, LST, the Lightspeed Transmission, are, are two very different and two very exciting technologies that shows the breadth of what we can do. So with the Regera, we really showcased uh, the most extreme hybrid powertrain on earth for a car, I would say. And, and with, with the LST uh, U-Pod transmission, we have kind of reinvented the transmission for, for a combustion engine by shrinking it, making it lighter, uh, much faster to shift and the ability to jump from any gear to any gear. And, and, um, and, and also it removes the flywheel and clutch from the, from, from the engine which means uh, you have a much faster revving engine uh, than otherwise. So it really takes that excitement up to, to the next level. 
but what we're seeing uh, for, for, for the future as well as with these different technologies, we can mix and match the knowledge and the components that we have created into completely new uh, uh, solutions that we would not have thought about otherwise. So they are like stepping stones for, for new products uh, that we are exploring, which are very, very excited. So, um, yeah. I mentioned the, the cult, uh, the culture issue earlier. What are your thoughts on that, on that cult following that the brand has created within the industry? I mean, I was there at Pebble Beach. I saw it firsthand and uh, in, in Monterey and on uh, Broadway, it, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, so one thing is of course the cars and we try to make the most exciting cars that it's possible to produce or create. But I, I do think a lot of the, the fans resonate with this, uh, this kind of fulfilling, fulfilling my dream and being allowed to do these amazing things and, and, and staying kind of true to the mission and uh, really sharing uh, this with, with every, anyone who's interested. Uh, we, we, I think the most important part of what I'm doing and what we do here at Koenigsegg is probably showing the world that, that you can really do anything you, you put your mind to. And we, we keep on getting a lot of uh, feedback and emails and letters from the public where they say, I saw what you did and what you guys are doing. And it, it made me, uh, well, take the steps to, to, to create my company, fulfill this dream. And I just want to thank you guys for for kind of leading the way and showing that it's possible. And, and I think it's kind of the combination of that and, and the extreme nature of the cars and so on, and, and that we're quite accessible, generally speaking, as a company to, to anyone who's interested, uh, uh, resonates uh, with, with passionate people in general. So, A lot of focus on speed. Will you attempt to retake the production speed record from Bugatti sometime soon? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, so we, in our mind, they didn't really take it from us <laughs> because uh, the Bugatti uh, speed run they did uh, uh, like a year or two ago, uh, it was, was one prototype car in one direction. So not the production car in two directions. So very, very, very impressive, uh, extreme speed, uh, but not necessarily a production car speed record. Uh, however, uh, the Yesco Absolute, um, is uh, as far as we uh, can judge even faster than that and, and that is a production car and, and uh, it would be very exciting to showcase its ultimate uh, capability uh, in the near future. Yeah, we can't wait. We can't wait, Christian. What, what drives you to want to continue to smash those records and create these mind-blowing cars? Well, I would put it like this. It's, it's, it's a testament to all the efforts going in by the team, all the efforts to create the car and to really show the world and ourselves uh, that, that what we have created stands out compared to any, anything out there. Um, and, and, and if it is possible, we kind of owe it our, to ourselves and everyone else to show, show what it is capable of. Also for, for the customers, of course, who buy it. So um we we push really really hard to to stay ahead of the curve and uh, and and that kind that's kind of the proof of the pudding in a way so related and back to the millennial question or the gen z question when we have so many young folks interested in your vehicles 
it kind of blows up the notion that young people aren't interested in cars, right? Well, exactly. And, and I think uh, it, it boils down a lot to, uh, I would say, uh, incredibly well-executed uh, car video games and the YouTube car culture. So I have a 15-year-old son. Um, I mean, he basically grew up here in the, in, in the company as a kid. And, and to him, extreme cars were everyday stuff in a way. And he didn't show that big of an interest. But then he kind of got into his own car culture thing with JDM cars and things like that. And he know details about cars from when I was a kid that I actually don't even know. And it dug deep into that. And, and a lot of his friends does the same thing. But I think it comes from this kind of YouTube video car game culture, which, which have absorbed these earlier cool cars as well. And, and they blend them and mix them knowledge-wise with the new cars. So there is this, at least this click of... Uh, of youngsters who are more car nut than I've ever seen before. And, and how, how widespread that is, I don't really know, but I think it's fairly widespread. So th there, there is for sure this interest. And I think uh, what happened to horses uh, uh, 150 years ago or so, uh, when they were replaced by, by cars, um, someone told me there are more horses today than when we, when we uh, used them as uh, well for transportation. And, and yes, to have fun with them and, and compete with them or, or, or whatever we do with them. And maybe the same thing will happen to at least sports cars when, when everything is kind of electrified or, or autonomized or whatever, that people still want to enjoy the rush of driving on racetracks or the Nürburgring or, or other places or maybe on the public if they're allowed. And, and there will be a, a huge culture and following around that. that that's what I believe at least will happen and, and seeing what happened in history. So maybe it's a statement as much about technology than a statement about affluence when it comes to these vehicles. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. When we look at other brands, we mentioned Tesla momentarily. Um, who do you admire? Oh, uh, so, uh, I mean, in, in our industry, uh, most of them are long gone, I guess. But uh, yeah, and so Ferrari, Ferdinand Porsche. I mean, the, these are all legends creating incredible brands and incredible cars. Uh, uh, so uh, yeah, I think it's when it comes to normal cars, I don't really have any any people that I well, that I really followed so much, or uh, I think, well, what Ford did was pretty amazing, of course. <laughs> Henry yes, Ford. Of course. Uh, so, um, but I, I think as a kid, I didn't really care so much about who did these cars. I more just looked at the cars themselves. Um, so it wasn't, I, I didn't really have a role model apart from this, this uh, bicycle repairman. <laughs> right, exactly. But he, he was a cartoon. How, how, so. about the, how about the brands that are achieving great things? Yeah, so um, in our industry, I think, uh, I mean, th there is, uh, if you look at Pagani, um, um, relatively small, uh, hard-hitting, extreme, hyper-megacore company that also came about in the similar time period as, as Koenigsegg did, and, and uh, very coincidental uh, that these two companies kind of came about at a similar time, not knowing about each other, working quietly, one in the north and one in the in the south, and uh, and and hitting the scene at a similar time, and that both would uh, shine and survive and and flourish 
uh, is quite unbelievable, but uh, that's what happened. So that that is very cool. Um, and uh, yeah, what else? Um, I mean, do you, most do you... other brands in this industry is, of course, so much older. Um, so it's a little bit harder to relate to these kind of startup situations. Do you learn from from what Pagani's doing? Do you watch them super closely, imitate, iterate? Uh, I don't know. Not not really. I would say. Uh, I, I would say anyone who's been in a Koenigsegg or Pagani would say they're completely different. Um, and 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 we have very different f- philosophies on how how to create the car, as far as I can see. But but I do uh, admire and appreciate very much what they're doing. It's a completely different uh, uh, mindset. And, and but the similarities are, I guess, very low volume, hand built, very expensive. Uh, That's what led I mean. by the founder, you know, it's uh, there are similarities, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a ghost logo that's on the cars that comes from the Swedish Air Force. Not a lot of people know about that. You've talked about it a little bit in the Apex movie. Tell our listeners what the the ghost logo is all about. Yeah, so we uh, we took over an old uh, military uh, fighter jet base in 2003. Um, and uh, the Swedish government had decided to shut it down, uh, and, and we were ki- kind of moving in while they were pulling out the planes, and the pilots were here, and and, and the staff cleaning up. Uh, so yeah, shutting it down basically. And and uh, I re- re- they came to us and said, "Listen, we have this ghost on our planes for like seventy years or something. They had been here forever." And, and we were called the ghosts because uh, in the early days uh, we were flying, hiding over the clouds before radars and stuff like that. So people could hear us, but they couldn't see us. So we were called the ghosts. And, and they had this ghost on their airplane. Um, and and they, they said, now that we're shutting down the squadron, it would be an honor for us if you could continue to carry this uh, symbol on your vehicles that you produce here where we, where we used to have our base and and, uh, and 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 let the legacy continue. And they had the, the slogan for the squadron was the show must go on. And and uh, then we felt okay, the show goes on. Then if we put this uh, this ghost on the uh, on on the cars, and this has turned out to be a pretty big thing. Um, so all the cars we produce here, they have the ghost on them. And uh, and uh, our our uh, uh, yearly uh, tours we have in Europe and in the U.S. and so on, we call the ghost squadron tours. So, uh, uh, and, and we have this symbol, we're giving it out to our uh, uh, car owners and, and, and employees here working, they get a little pin with, with, with a silver or golden ghost on it so they can wear on their lapel. And, and when they walk car shows and so on, you can see that they're either owning a Koenigsegg or working for Koenigsegg and or participating in the Ghost Squadron tour. And, and also our fans kind of uh, call themselves, uh, yeah, uh, part of the ghost squadron so it's uh, it's become a thing which is pretty cool well you have such a nod to history even your iconic badge is based on the family's coat of arms dates back to the 12th century right. rich history strong identity that's what you're known for yeah so so uh i remember when i started out i wasn't even sure if i was going to call the company Koenigsegg because it's such a complicated name but uh, th- then I realized that Hagen does the ice cream maker. They made up that complicated name to be different. So I, th- I thought if you if you make up something as complicated as that, then I guess we can co- I can call it Koenigsegg. Uh, and that was of course the tradition in the car industry to name it after your last name. Um, 
but but I know, yeah, as a family had this crest and I, I got a logo. And in, in the first few years, we didn't have any history. So then I felt at least the logo is old. So we have some history. <laughs> <laughs> what what markets excite you as you look outward? I, I know you've talked about the uh, Asian market being very prominent. What what other areas of growth could there be? Yeah, so uh, I, I would put it like this. R- right now, it's very evenly spread around the world, um, the, the customer base. Um so the, the, let's say the, the, the country that has the most Koenigsegg uh, for one country is the US, but of course it's a very big, it's basically a continent. And, and the US uh, together with Canada and Mexico is basically the same volumes as Europe. And Europe uh, is about the same volumes as Asia and the Middle East together. So it's very, very evenly spread, uh, which is great because we really want uh, all different cultures and and, and, uh, and places to enjoy our cars and for the fans to see them and so on. Um, and, and I mean, the world is still a big place for us. Uh, um, so th- this year we're producing, I guess, around 30 cars. So uh, it's not going to be many ending up in one, in one spot. Um, at the same time, we're then expanding this uh, quite a lot over the coming years into, yeah, uh, well into the hundreds to get with this four-seater Jamira we're building and, and some other cars coming up as well. So. Yeah, how much opportunity could the Jamira provide you? Do you, do you figure well, from the volume? Um, so, so we're, we're looking at producing uh, well over 100 per year. Um, and, and it is a, a more kind of daily driving platform, but it's still very, very extreme. It's a four-seater. Um, and, and it's, it's really uh, the, the fundamentals for, for many products going forward four and two seaters. So it enables us to go up a little bit in volume. And of course, going from 30 to, to hundreds of cars sounds like a very big step. But putting that into context of, I guess, uh, Ferrari and uh, Lamborghini building close to 10,000s of cars per year or, or McLaren in the three, four, five thousands, something like that. And the same with Aston Martin. It's still extremely low volume. Um, and, and, and we don't see us going much higher than than that in the in the next couple of years, but for us it's of course a big step, but it, but it really enables us to to uh, have a little bit more of an impact in the market and, and really supply the demand that's out there for what we do. Uh, we we have already established forty dealers around the world, and and that is way too many for for thirty cars per year, <laughs> clearly. Uh, but but of course these these dealers have uh, the future in mind and and orders in the pipeline uh, connected to our expansion. So, just in the final few minutes we have left, Christian, define the culture of Koenigsegg for me. How would you define it? I would say it's it's a can do uh, can do uh, uh, mentality uh, and uh, also uh, kind of people willing to step out of the comfort zone that are working here, challenge themselves, jump into to the deep end, uh, learning how to swim um, and and get out on the other side. So it is some people say here that working one year for Koenigsegg is like working five years for another company of all the stuff you do and and the responsibility you have to take and and i think it's a very forming experience being here uh and and uh it's it's about pushing boundaries really and and seeing beyond around the next corner kind of thing around the next corner for you is a birthday that ends in a zero a uh a very important one so what would you like your next 10 years to look like if we are reflecting back on your next big birthday? 
<laughs> yeah. So a decade I'm, yeah, I'm down t- the road, what does exactly. that look like for you? How would you define your success? Well, I think uh, for me, it's when it comes to Koenigsegg, it's it's about uh, making sure the company thrives and uh, and stays viable and can roll with the times. Um, making sure we can have a positive impact in in our marketplace, but also in in, in people's lives and in, on the environment. To me, it's important that what, what we develop here is not only let's say fun toys for the for the wealthy but it also has a, a bigger meaning when it comes to artistry technology and and how this can send rings on the water and to inspire uh, uh, other people to doing exciting things so as long as long as we can do that um, I, I I would consider that a success then how how big we will grow or, or exactly what our products will look like that 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 of course depends on on a lot of factors that are not only, in our own, um, uh, should I say, uh, yeah, something we cannot entirely control, but we are, we're used to kind of, yeah, rolling with the times, rolling with the punches and, and moving forward. So, Do you want to launch, launch a rocket one day? That would be very exciting, um, but uh, <laughs> it's not in the pipeline in the near future. However, I would say uh, some of the technology we're, technologies that we're working on m- might have a place in, in that kind of application. For example, uh, the, the free valve technology that we have developed for, for uh, our Jamira engine and so on, you can use that for some type of kind of rocket propulsion engines and stuff like that. So, uh, and I would also say the, the engine technology we are working on for the Jamira might end up in aerospace and these kind of things, but, but uh, it's not in the pipeline to build our own rockets uh, at this moment in time. <laughs> well, they are rockets on the road and whether they take off and go into space, it doesn't really matter. Christian, thank you so much for being on Cars and Culture. It's been an absolute thrill to talk to you. Great talking to you as well, Jason. Thanks to Christian van Koenigsegg, founder and CEO of the Swedish high-performance manufacturer, Koenigsegg Automotive AB. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow Cars and Culture on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM, and on Twitter at Cars Culture SXM. I'm Jason Stein in London. We'll see you down the road.